This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, Dreamland. My name is Jeremy Vaney, and I am the special guest host for Whitley Strieber. Um, this will actually be, I've been doing this for a little bit over a year, and um, I've decided to call it quits uh, because I need to concentrate on my book and my own public speaking. Um, so I'm going to be going to do that. Um, so if in the future you want to keep up with me, I will be at OurUndoing.com. That is my website. And I've been talking on here about uh, doing what I've sort of semi-jokingly been calling ufological grad school, sort of a video series on uh, high strangeness experiences. And um, I'm, I still want to do that. I've just got too much going on to be able to get to it as soon as I wanted to get to it. Um, but if you write to me, jeremy at ourundoing.com or just go to the website, ourundoing.com, there's a contact form. If you are interested and you want me to remember that, <laughs> uh, please go and, and let me know um, so I can uh, email you when, when I'm ready to do that. Okay, uh, I would like to thank, of course, Whitley Strieber and his staff for accommodating me here. Um, and I think that this week's episode is a great bookend to my first episode with Alicia Pulianisi. Um, where if you remember that far back, we talked about um, the builder mounds in America and the uh, sort of racist political uh, shenanigans that went on to make them seem as though they were uh, not built by the first peoples in America. This episode is not exactly that. This is, uh, we'll be talking with Tom Peake, uh, who is the author of Mauna Kea, and uh, it's a novel, but there's an underlying nonfiction behind this novel, and I want to get to that. It's not often that we do novels on this show, but um, it deals with the politics of the mountain or volcano, really, Mauna Kea, uh, involving, maybe you've heard about the 30-meter telescope debacle. Um, so there's politics and intrigue and, and that sort of thing, but underlying it all is the magic of Hawaii. I mean, underneath the, like the politics are an important part, but also, and um, eternally so, um, is this sense of real magic and metaphysics, as Tom will say. He will chastise me for using the word paranormal. Um, but metaphysics, there's a metaphysics at work here. Oh boy, is there. And I want to get to that with him because he's not Hawaiian. And um, it's not often that a non-Hawaiian gets to, even in fiction, really write about such things here and still not be harassed <laughs> on the island, you know, by people who are like, yeah, you're doing cultural appropriation. Tom is not doing cultural appropriation, thankfully. Um, but he is getting at, he really the book is showing um, from the so-called normal rational uh, sort of day-to-day -day level of Hawaii to the magical undercurrent. Um, he's really showing sort of the fullness of what it is to actually live here beyond the, uh, you know, sort of mythical paradise that, you know, is promoted for tourism's sake, right? Um, there's a lot more going on. 
beneath that surface. And he really gets to it. And But what I really want to get to and focus on with this interview, and I think we do, um, is the so-called magical element or the metaphysical element, um, which is different than what, you know, what we heard from Alicia Puglianisi um, about builder mounds. But so I, I think it's sort of, um, I think it's a perfect way to go out. So thanks, Tom Peak, for uh, being my final guest. Um, you can find him at TomPeak.com. And thank all of you for listening. And now let's listen to Tom Peak talk about his book, Mauna Kea. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome the author of Mauna Kea, a novel of Hawaii, the award-winning Tom Peak. Tom, welcome to Dreamland, and thank you for doing this. Yeah. Aloha, Jeremy. Aloha to your listeners. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. So it's interesting. We don't do uh, a whole lot of fiction on this, or at least, you know, people who know that they're doing fiction. Uh, <laughs> but this book obviously comes from an authentic and nonfiction place um, it, in many respects. Um, and I want to get into some of those. But, I mean, obviously, we're dealing with Hawaii, and uh, you're, to my knowledge, you're not Hawaiian. So how does it work out that a non-Hawaiian uh, writes a book of Hawaii? That's a good question. Um, you know, I came to Hawaii uh, to visit someone some 30, over 30 years ago, who was uh, actually an auntie of mine. From the island I grew up on, on Gray Cloud Island in Minnesota. And I was on a vagabond journey and uh, found out I could get a cheap flight. And I wanted to go find out why did this woman that has known me since I was just a little cakey, a kid, um, suddenly at age 55, she disappears from Gray Cloud Island, uh, which is an island on the Mississippi River uh, in the backwaters. And a little tiny township. And she up and disappears to some place called Hilo, Hawaii. And so I'm on a vagabond trip. I, I got a cheap flight from uh, California. I flew out. And, and she was living in Keokaha. She had a, with her Filipino boyfriend, who was completely connected with a big extended family, including into Hawaii, into um Native Hawaiian among there were Native Hawaiians in that that extended family, and so I was immediately thrust into kind of local culture through her. Um, I had never intended to come to Hawaii. I only came to see her, but she was in Keokaha. First day took me up to see Kilauea. Second day up to Mauna Kea, up to Halepohaku, and suddenly I realized this is a very different picture of Hawaii than I ever imagined. And growing up on the mighty Mississippi, on the upper Mississippi, in a backwaters archipelago with river people, I immediately resonated with the primal nature. This was kind of like Great, Great Cloud Island and, and Lake Superior, or, uh, the Mississippi River, plus Lake Superior, where I had sailed and sh shipwrecked dove and been going there since I was a kid. But those are primal places. But this this was even more primal. 
And so I actually decided while I was sleeping on her uh, living room floor that I was going to not go to Asia on my vagabond journey. I was going to go to the South Pacific. So uh, this is a little bit of a digression, um, but to give this background, but it's important. I ended up here not intending to be here, almost by really by accident. And then I resonated also with the local people because they're more like and um, people uh, that I grew up with on the river in this little township and along the river, um, those little river towns. And uh, when I got back from the South Seas, hitchhiking by boat, uh, running out of money in Australia, I decided, you know, I'm going to come back and see if I can get a job. And lo and behold, my first job was to be a tour guide part time. It's like three quarters time um, living and working on Mauna Kea. I, I lived at the base camp. Uh, so and then I short. So then I also one of the many jobs I did to support my writing was I ended up also working on Kilauea as an eruption duty ranger. These were all part time jobs. I mean, not full time, especially the park jobs. No benefits in the in that one, except the benefit was I was working on two of the most sacred places in the archipelago, and immediately began to make connections with and develop relationships with people who were connected to those two places. So when I was first here, particularly, I mean, most of my friends, even to this day, most of them are local people of various ethnicities and including native Hawaiians almost from the beginning. And it was through the Mauna Kea connection that one of the, um, one of the telescope operators who was native Hawaiian introduced me to the woman that ended up being my kupuna and ultimately actually hanaid me into her family. So for, for people who don't know, what is kupuna and what is hanai? Uh, thank you. Um, kupuna in general terms means an elder, but it, it usually is when we use that word, it also means revered elder. I mean, someone with a particular place in their their culture or their society and um and so um and the, the other question was oh and hide me that they it's an it's a kind of informal ad, adopt it's a polynesian tradition if oftentimes families will say oh become part of our clan and so anti did that which meant that when we were with her family that also let them they were relieved because then they could just be themselves they didn't you know yeah the guy's a holly but you know i i vetted him he's he's part of our ohana right and so um between my friends and my kupuna or elder um i had suddenly was drawn into hawaiian culture at a pretty deep level that actually challenged my Western thinking. Um, and, um, and then Hawaiians would ask, some of these people would ask for my involvement. Like I, I wasn't really, they've had plenty of missionaries, right? But so I, I'm not into like offering help people don't want. <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> the, 
the telescope operator, Kielo Hapishota, who ultimately became one of the major um, spokespeople for, for protection of Mauna Kea as a cultural practitioner. And, and that's the other thing. Many of these people, not all, but some were cultural practitioners, um, asked for me to help with a big healing ceremony that was going to take place uh, on Kilauea Volcano about a week before the 100th anniversary of the overthrow. And I had a particular kind of cross-cultural role because I had had a lot of media experience and political experience before I came to Hawaii, though they didn't know that. It was some kind of instinctive thing. Anyway, I was asked to the, the elders at this big ceremony called Kamaka Eha, which in which the park closed the top of the vault of Kilauea for 24 hours for a healing ceremony. And it had come from a vision from an elder. And the so they were and they, the other elders in the community said, yeah, this is a real deal. We need we have to do this. And so they got the cooperation of the park. By then, I had actually worked some with the park. And so my job was to be with the media who had been allowed limited, very limited media access to this cultural event. This is not a show. Anyone who came, people were invited to come who were not from the culture, but they had they, no gawkers, just participants. This is about a healing ceremony. And so. Uh, my job was to ma um, monitor the media that was there and make sure they followed the protocols, like no filming, no photography, no recording when people were doing prayers, for example. And I had to enforce it. And with me, I'm like the Howley guy in his Howley clothes. With me was a, a Nakoa, which is a, a, a warrior guard, wearing his malo. And having his pololu, which is a big spear, <laughs> and there was one guy who took a picture. And I mean, we were both on him, including uh, the Hawaiian with his spear pointed at him, like, you know, and we almost kicked him out. So that was the beginning of involvement of mine um, is a kind of insider participant in, in, in a number of ways that evolved. But what it did is, you know, that ceremony was a healing ceremony, which was what many Hawaiians have said, you know, Kamaka Eha, the 24 hours ceremony, was what led to no violence at the 100th anniversary when 15,000 Hawaiians marched through Honolulu to the, uh, to the, um, to the, palace of the uh, you know the former palace of the queen that had been overthrown with the cooperation of the united states so that was a remarkable thing and um anyway that's how i got involved and and then my own values it didn't take very long for me to realize my own values and some of the ways i was raised on the river were very and some of the experiences i'd had on the river were very much like I, I resonated with the Hawaiian perspective. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that things that Westerners often call a superstition or this is lore and this is a legend and so on. It turns out that that's a very 
intricate worldview that's evolved over a 5,000 year period from when those po the Polynesians first moved from um, somewhere around Taiwan, began to move west through the Pacific in small boats, sailboats, navigating their way to discover archipelagos and, and then living during that 5,000 year period, living um, on small islands. And so by the time they get to Hawaii, they, they're, they've got a pretty sophisticated, complicated, um, intricate worldview that is far from, oh, a colorful story of lore, uh, you know, a bunch of native superstitions. I mean, these are the ways that Westerners who have not been exposed to that, you know, often kind of categorized Hawaiians and other Polynesian cultures. So, um, so what I've written, this book, so to, to sort of wrap your question is that really there was, there was so much that I witnessed personally. And then of course, along the way, I'm trying to understand it by going into the most credible of the of the old literature, you know, by Hawaiians, that was less contaminated by the missionary period, and also the reading the modern history to kind of put Hawaii into place. All the time I'm doing this, but primarily it was my own experiences with my friends, and um, with my kupuna, and. Um, and then I had to process that. And I'm a writer. I had written for many years for the University of Minnesota before I ever came here, but it was all kind of left brain stuff. And so, but I knew how to write. I had the discipline to write. That was how I was going to process. That's my meditation. I figured, I, I figured a lot of it out first with a, a, a novel I never wrote, um, based in part on my experiences in the South Pacific, including getting caught in a coup d'etat in Fiji. And then um, Daughters of Fire, which revolved around um, the, the active volcanoes and, by, and, and drawing on what I'd learned as an eruption ranger and my connections with USGS people and with native Hawaiians, including elders and practitioners from Kilauea. And then the Mauna Kea book, which reflects a 30-year relationship with the mountain, first as one of the early tour guides on Mauna Kea, and until I could no longer morally stay there after they proposed, you know, over 100 telescopes, more new telescopes, it was untenable. And then also as a person directly involved, mostly behind the scenes, but not entirely, I, I also testified at meetings, and attended protests in the later years. But I was involved from the mid 90s all the way to today with Native Hawaiians um, in trying to protect the mountain. So yeah, I'm an outsider, but, but, I, but I was invited in. And then once invited in, asked to participate. And so I did. And um, and it was consistent with my own values. Then, of course, in, as time went on, I became what anthropologists sometimes call a kind of a liminal person who can move in and out of two cultures. And and so I have a this. Both of my books reflect the ability to pretty honestly portray um, both 
Hawaiian culture, but also more importantly, the American culture that's putting so much pressure on the Hawaiian culture here. I mean, I know them very well. I, so as one Hawaiian said, this book, Mauna Kea is a, um, let's see, how did Kuluna put it? Um, it's a compelling, entertaining story that encompasses eight, that encompasses ancient Hawaiian concepts and American thought patterns. And, and so it's both books are the juxtaposition of those. And they reflect my personal experience first as a witness, then processing it. And then, of course, ultimately getting involved in the efforts to protect actually uh, behind the scenes as a ranger. I also worked with my Hawaiian friends to protect Kilauea, where they felt I could be helpful. And, and that all, it was all, you know, I've never, I've never aspired to become a native Hawaiian. I am a person between cultures who looks into both cultures. And there's a certain valuable perspective in that as long as you try to write it as honestly as you can. And I wrote it initially for myself so I could process all these experiences, some of which didn't, you know, I, I didn't have the vernacular to understand what I was actually witnessing or experiencing with my friends. Anyway, long answer. Sorry. But that's no. uh, so. The thing that's great about the book, or one of the things that's great about the book, is the intricate weaving of uh, what you call magical realism with um, science, with the politics, you know, getting all of these various perspectives that sort of are the backdrop to what, you know, tourists come and think is, you know, fantasy land, <laughs> you know, like the real sort of what's underneath paradise. Um, and in some sense, it's just like anywhere else, you know, but in another sense, not be the sense that like the magic part, the magic part is real. And I kind of want to talk about that, um, in a couple of ways, but I, I guess I just want to ask you first, especially as someone who's been up there working there with astronomers, why don't they see it? Why don't they feel it? If there truly is magic here, and there is, why is it that some people get it, understand it, experience it, and other people don't experience it? Well, one of the things that I actually touch on pretty significantly in the book is that these scientists actually did experience it. But then they denied it. And my first exposure to that was this great you know, there's there's a um, when an astronomer would get done the, the the tallest catwalk on the top of the of any observatory there is still to this day the UH 88 inch telescope, which was the first giant telescope built on the mountain. <laughs> and that catwalk, sci scientists would come out, the astronomers would come out to take a break to look at the stars or to have a cigarette if they were smokers back in the day. You know, I, I'm talking, I was up there as a guide in 88. So some of these guys had been coming up since the late 60s and through the 70s. And, and they would see from the catwalk these strange lights out on the North Plateau. And it was a repeated thing. I mean, they saw them. It was, it was part of that real, med, it, 
literary literary people call it magical realism, right? In reference to sort of the magical realism of South American and Central American literature, but you know, it's just part of the reality, right? It's, it's the metaphysical reality here. But they would see it. But then what they would do, um, some of them would just say, "Well, you know, I saw that, but uh, you know, I don't want to think about it. I don't, I don't want to. I'm not going to go there." And others would actually deny the fact by saying, well, and I remember one astronomer, I, I heard this with my own ears. Well, I think what it is is when those lights show up over there, those, those, the, the, there's nothing there. Okay, this is wilderness, basically. There's nothing there. There's nothing to provide the lights, let alone the behavior of the lights. So they would say, well, I think what it is is it's the permafrost in the cinder. On, a, on, on moonlit nights, and the moonlight is coming through and refracting back and creating this illusion of lights, which was, which is, in other words, my interpretation was these guys are just finding a scientific way to deny what they actually experienced, right? And, or more often they would compartmentalize it, you know, like, why did the brakes go out? There was no in the vehicle, you know. How how did that happen? You know, there was no rational understanding. Weird stuff would happen. Um, so I think what happens is scientists have kind of a myopia, which is both their strength and their weakness. If you follow the scientific method, your job is to theorize something, try to prove that theory, and then immediately try to disprove the theory with more data. And so to do that, to keep the integrity of that, you have to continually kind of stay within a narrow focus. So things that fall outside that, by design, are not considered. But that you can't. You have to. You have to realize then that this is a scientific truth as best we understand it. But they're often changed over time. That's what all the scientific competition is about. Somebody proves something. Somebody tries to disprove it, et cetera, et cetera. And then they have give awards to people who can do that. Well, the thing is, that's a very narrow perspective. You can't turn to scientists and expect them to understand things outside what their method can deal with. So that what that means is that they can't deal with the metaphysical reality in any kind of reasonable way because they don't have the tools to figure that out. And they that's not part of their focus. The mistake is when they deny a part of reality that science is not best equipped to deal with. It'd be better to talk to the yogis or the, you know, the well, ancient scholars of Taoism and Buddhism and whatever. So that's what I call scientific my, my the scientific myopic thing. But remember, it's the strength of their discipline, but it's the weakness of their worldview. And right. I try to show both simultaneously in both my novels there's a lot of science in both novels and a lot of this other thing yeah well but see and i and i hear that a lot but it it really means that there are human beings who have decided somewhere along the way to so over identify with their occupation that they lose a part of their own humanness right <laughs> to be like well my science brain can't you know it Everything has to answer to science, whatever that means, you know, 
observations, I guess, but they don't want to observe this. So I, I don't know. I, so when you say that, it's just funny because it, it just strikes me as like, well, I'm going to repress my actual own experience as a person because what my profession tells me is that can't happen or that I don't know enough to even address that. I mean, well, and, what other as a McDonald's worker, you wouldn't do that. Like, what other profession do you do that? Where you're like, my profession tells me, dictates that I will not have these experiences. Okay, but you should, I would urge you to have some compassion for them because everyone who studies something, they develop a paradigm which is both very liberating, it allows them to see something, but also it limits their their range of views you know and so and then there's a lot of there's a lot of peer pressure and um institutional pressure for people not to get too far out and so there's some risk associated for people um help me out what's the name of the the guy that it was the original guy behind um creating the SETI project um to look to, to set up telescopes to look for signals. Um, I've, I've just forgotten his name, but, you know, he took a lot of heat. Sagan took some heat, too, because he was involved with that, Carl Sagan. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's a combination of are you willing to entertain this as a person, but then you have to have sufficient self-regard and a sense of personal sovereignty that, if you've discovered something that's unconventional, that would be a heresy, you've got to have some guts. I mean, I remember um, in my life before, I'll give you a scientific example. When in my life before I came to Polynesia, I studied, I, I, I actually have an, I, my education is from the Humphrey Institute in Minnesota. It's a public policy school. And my background is, um, I was interested in sustainability, so I actually have a planning degree in energy technology, energy and and uh, and uh, technology planning. And so I'm I go back on the sustainability thing long enough to be able to tell you, with some experience, that when the first models about global warming came out, the majority of the scientific community completely said, "This is nuts. There's no way we could." we could have that impact on the planet. And it, it, it was courageous scientists who also had a sense of self-esteem and personal sovereignty that were willing to buck the scientific community and say, no, you know, our models indicate this. Similar thing happened in economics. Uh, it became clear in the 70s and there were some really internationally known major studies to show that you can't sustain growth economies. But most scientists are, most economists who consider themselves scientists, and they don't have the guts to stand there. There's too much political pressure. So what I'm saying is you, you gotta have some compassion for them. It's more than just their perception. It's also the constraints that are placed especially if you come from a society that is a technocracy since the 1950s that's focused on STEM, science, energy, or science, engineering, and technology, right? That's the American identity. So, 
And, and that's what was emphasized and has and continues to be increasingly emphasized in the schools. So we are kind of educating people away from a broader perspective. If you read into science history, science history had a whole metaphysical aspect to it. Um, and I'm not an expert in that, but I've read enough to know that there was not, you know, there was even the reference to sacred, ge sacred geometry. Now these are these are these were mainstream ideas in an earlier time, but we're now in a different time in the 20th and latter 20th and 21st century, where the constraints on scientific thinking are substantial, and the politics is well played out in both of my novels. In Daughters of Fire, in terms of the pressures put on USGS scientists who told me about those pressures, and as well on the people who, uh, and then in, in, in the Mauna Kea book even more so. So you, you're gonna meet a bunch of astronomers who are different different kinds of people that I've met. I mean, they're, they're not based on real people, but they, they're sort of composites or, you know. Uh, right. But what, what I want people to be able to see is, all, see all this played out. What I saw played out over a 30-year period, if you access either of my novels, you, you get, it's as if you were there with me. Um, and, and, you know, you have to be here for a long time and have intimate relationships. And I had intimate relationships and continue to have intimate relationships um, with not only Native Hawaiians, but with scientists. You know, I could see this whole interplay. Um, Do you, let me ask you this. Do you think uh, the fact that they saw lights, uh, whatever the phenomena is producing those lights, is sort of saying like, hey, you're looking up there for lights. There's lights right here. Or, hey, you want to see that? Well, here it is. You know, like, do you think that there's an irony to what they're actually seeing in terms of, quote unquote, paranormal phenomena? Um. I'm not sure I quite understand your question. Can you repeat? I mean, they could have, like, whatever the, unless people see lights all the time up there, I guess maybe this is where the answer might be no, which is, like, if people see those types of lights up there all the time, uh, regardless of astronomy, um, then I guess the answer is no. But if the phenomena, if a paranormal phenomenon up there could be anything, and for them what they're seeing are lights, which is pretty much what they're seeing, trying to see out in outer space is lights <laughs> through their telescopes. Um, is there sort of a, a message in what they're seeing and ignoring here or, or no, or am I just on the wrong track here? Um, you know, I, I would kind of look at it in a different way. First, I would go, I, I would not use the word paranormal because what you've done is you've also narrowed the nature of that uh, phenomena. The great author uh, Joseph Campbell, when he was being interviewed by Bill Moyers um, at the Lucas Ranch, because you know um, the Star Wars movies were based, were inspired by Joseph Ca Joseph uh, Campbell's work. He studied myths across all cultures, and he, he was like the guy. If you, if any of you listeners haven't read, dipped into, especially if you're interested in the paranormal or uh, indigenous spirituality or whatever, you, Joseph 
uh, Campbell was what you want to read. But anyway, Campbell uh, later in his life, when he's being interviewed out there, he said there's a metaphysical reality and the physical reality, both. And it's the, the physical reality is held up by a metaphysical reality. And the interesting thing is the observations of people over a long period of time and across cultures is very common in their perspective. It's really the Westerners, and they come from a more um, scientific-oriented religious background, too. He talks about Christianity, the Judeo-Christian um, religion was formed during a period of, of um, when Aristotle was very influential. So it's, it's a little more like literal, like, no, no, what's actually in our sacred documents has actually happened rather than, I mean, like in most religions in the world, they're strong metaphorical stories to help people orient and that tell you them what their relationship is to each other and to the gods and to the, to the, to nature. Um, anyway, I don't, well, the paranormal thing has a lot of baggage. I think it's better to think about metaphysics in that, that in Hawaii, there's a way in which Native Hawaiians, like my friends, walk in both realities simultaneously. They do not separate it. Like this is the reality at the supermarket. This is the reality in, in, in the metaphysical world, in the cultural world. Um, one, one of the things, for example, I'll give you another example. Um, sometimes scientists... Uh, but I think this is a core issue, and I think based on your audience, this, people will be interested. When you go to ch chapter 28 in the book, you remember chapter 28? There's opens up with the two guys that are that are in this trailer that's been put up there as, to keep them warm, and then they go up and check, check the first telescope built on Pu'upoleahu. And then there's a discussion of what happens at Lake Waiau and why are there waves on the lake and and then there's a whole discussion of the 1968 unprecedented winter storm. Well, you know, all of those things happen. I mean, those are that that's a fictionalized version of stuff that actually is part of all of those are part of the astronomers lore of working on Mauna Kea. But what they do is they 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 say, I can't explain these things. I can't explain why. Suddenly, we had the worst winter that anybody could remember, just when we're trying to dig into the top of the mountain in order to level the cones so we can build the first big telescope so it'll be ready for the Apollo space launch, the moon landing. And so, you know, they compartmentalize it. So, so that's how what happens. Whether it's the strange lights on the North Plateau, whether it's the 19th, trying to explain how did that 1986, why did that big storm come when it was, you know, which made it impossible to dig into the top of the mountain so they could build a telescope, and it delayed the whole project by a year, and they missed the the the, the moon landing. Um, whereas the Hawaiian will say, "Well, think about that. Okay, why?" Well, well, what's actually happening there? And what does it mean for us? How are we supposed to act as a result of that experience? So I think that scientists, and there's a, 
Can I tell you another great example? You remember when the Voyager space probe went out and they discovered the first erupting volcano uh, on on Io, which is a moon, one of the moons of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Okay, until that moment, scientists' doctrine was there are no erupting volcanoes on any other planet in the solar system except ours. So when the 88-inch telescope was built, they actually picked up. They saw a volcano erupting, but it was just a bunch of photons. And they kept puzzling. What's all the, what are all these photons? What's going on up there? And finally, because they had no paradigm in which to understand it, or their, the idea that there might be erupting volcanoes was not in their doctrine, they said it must be just a technical glitch. It was just a technical glitch. So actually, the 88-inch telescope science, the guys on that telescope, they saw the erupting volcano on Io before the Voyager went by. It was Voyager that made them go back and look at their data and said, geez, we actually saw this a number of years ago. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's not yeah. exactly yeah. ideological. This is why you have to have compassion for it. It's a limitation of the strength of their scientific method. It's a limitation of the strength of their scientific method. Hmm. And so, and that isn't even a metaphysical reality. That's a physical reality. That's an erupting volcano. Now, the interesting thing is, one of the scientists who lived on, on um, Bradford Smith was the head of the imaging team for the Voyager space probe. It, it, he was the one on TV explaining what we were seeing. And, but he also was on the nomenclature until his death a few years ago. He was on the no, International Nomenclature Committee. And he's the guy who was living in Hawaii on Kealakekua Bay at Naapo'opo'o and was interested in Hawaiian culture and knew a lot about Hawaiian culture, even knew some of the language, had started studying the language. He's the guy that when the nomenclature committee that names all the features that we have in the solar system, he's the guy that said, you know what, that, er that erupting volcano that we saw, let's name it Pele, after the goddess of Hawaiian volcanoes. Now, there is a case of someone who's got a bit broader view, right? You know, and he's a very, um, how do I put it? I mean, he was a very prominent, he, he, until his death, he was a, a very prominent member of the scientific community. But like Sagan and others, he had a broader perspective, enough that he could honor this Hawaiian goddess by giving, hey, first volcano outside the solar, uh, outside of Earth, let's name it Pele. And he got him to go along because he had clout. Does that answer your question, Jeremy, or am I taking you too far yeah. afield? No, that, that's good. <laughs> and I apologize, I apologize for the long answers. It's a kind of a, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Dane, I'm mostly Danish, and, and Minnesotans have long winters, and so they learn to just talk probably too long. Um, Hawaiians call it vala'au, you know. They say, oh, ah, you went vala'au so much, you just like some of us. People would rather hear you talk than me, so it's fine. Dreamlanders, we will be right back with more Tom Peake after these messages. Um, 
So I had told you that I wanted, you know, sort of a, I mean, it's a little too late for a jumping off point, but if, um, it, it sort of works in with what we're talking about. Uh, there's just a line in here where you have someone talking about, um, uh, about these sort of uh, metaphysical happenings and saying, as a scientist, it's impossible for me to comprehend all that. But as a blue water sailor, I know people experience things in wild places that are difficult to explain. Um, so, and that kind of, that gets at the, the, the sort of two tiered thinking that we're talking about. I, I, it just struck me reading that what happens when we concrete and tar over all of the wild places? Um, Does that kill the magic? Um, Where does that magic go? Or, you know, the spirit of the land, where does that spirit go? Does it bide its time? (laughs) Like what, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I assumed that that magical stuff that happens here in Hawaii wouldn't occur back on the continent. And I got scoldings from Hawaiians, including another kupuna that sort of showed up, um, which my first kupuna, um, Antilena Ala, she said, you know, she kind of predicted that this man would show up. But anyway, one of the things he said to me is, everything that you've experienced here in Hawaii you can experience when you go back home. He said, you just, now that you know how to not close your eyes to it, it will occur. You'll be able to see it. So that's one one element. Antilena Ala, the kupuna that, um, my first kupuna and who brought me into her family, you know, she once said, there are no people. There are no places. She said, there are no places without the people. So what Uncle Ed was saying on the one hand is if we're sensitized to it, we'll realize that there's, the sacred is everywhere. And we want to be open to that in our perception as well as in our hearts. And if we don't understand something, it's okay. In other words, you don't you can accept something that you don't understand. I mean, you can have an experience and not understand. That's better than dissecting it or turning in. I mean, one of the problems that can that often occurs in the discussion of so-called paranormal stuff is that some of the people who have had experiences, they also just sort of want to apply the scientific method to prove that what they had was it sometimes it's better, right? But the other thing, getting back to the question of if you tar and concrete over these places, and it's a really good question that you're bringing up, it, it, it isn't probably the tar and the concrete that's going to destroy whatever the sacred nature of it is. It's when you have taken all the people who are the intermediary between us and the sacred from the place that you will not as another human being be able to access it in other words it's critically important that hawaiians are here there are so many tourists you know i was a ranger i talked to thousands of tourists i was a tour guide on mauna kea and i was a ranger people have experiences they sense the sacred nature of it 
they understand they're in a special place and they they enunciate it but it but part of that is too because they're interacting with the island people and it isn't just the hawaiians all the different ethnicities that have come since then you know the people that worked in the plantations who come from the asian traditions which are also very ancient they go back 5000 years you know there's a lot of people sensitized to this who are not in denial about it and who try to integrate it with their generally modern view or contemporary view or technological view which is a you know an understanding of science and and actually i find like native hawaiians they don't have any problem with science they're inclusive they see science as but they recognize it's a narrow perspective and that they have a bigger world view but they don't say our worldview is better than yours. But the scientists, of course, tend, you know, there's a whole history of colonialism. I mean, some of this was just to justify economic and military reasons, but but there was also kind of a, a philosophical thing that somehow or other this is an inferior culture because they have a broader view. And that, that was a mistake, you know, that was a mistake and also um, led to a justification of colonialism, of being able to take over people because well, they're inferior to our culture. And some of it was racial, but a lot of it was actually what I would call ethnocentric. They just felt, and there are, most scientists I've met are still pretty ethnocentric. They're not racist toward the Hawaiians. They just believe that their worldview and that the mountain's purpose should be for science. You know, they, they, they have an ethnocentric bias which then doesn't allow them to see more clearly or to feel some compassion for the Hawaiians and their frustration for years of having every sacred place damaged by the incoming culture. So I would say that that's only part of the problem, tarring and concrete. If you replace the people who have a long connection to the land with people who do not have a long connection, and who also by cultural, because of their cultural background, may not be able to make those connections. That's the real damage. And then if it's the it's the tar and the concrete and the and the and the new settlers that actually has destroyed the potential for it to be sacred. But I, I suspect if, if you should ask that to a native Hawaiian, you know, what if all those things happen? Is the land still sacred? They'll probably tell you. Yeah, because it was sacred even before we showed up, right? You know, but there, but people are an intermediary between the land and its larger meaning. And well, if the yes. people who understand it aren't there, it's not accessible to other human beings. Does that make sense, Jeremy, to you? Well, yeah, and it's not, and, and it may even be further than that. Like, one thing I wanted to tell you is uh, when I when my grandmother died a number of years ago, on my dad's side, I uh, went to spread her ashes, I think it was on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And um, this is after having lived here for a number of years. And going there, you know, it's big, it's beautiful, it's a mountain, it's, you know, it, it's, but it's, there's something soul dead about it. Like, there, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on, like, why was this place so cold and dead as opposed to Hawaii, which is like alive and almost cartoonishly alive to me inside. 
you know, inside me. And I got to thinking about what is the difference. And the difference is it didn't have its, you know, native cultures right. along the mountain to know what to do ritualistically or however that shakes out to sort of, I mean, I, I guess I almost see, you know, these cultures as being in tune with Earth, Mama Earth, obviously, but then also doing some sort of like, almost like acupuncture or something. Like there's something in these spots that needs to be done. And if no one is there to do it, then it atrophies for a while or something until, until it comes up, you know, culture comes up through the land. And so if it comes up again through people there, great, then maybe they can do it. <laughs> but if not, what happens? And I feel like that might be sort of the difference between Hawaii and other places is that they don't have those people there with the, the so-called knowledge, but really it's just the openness to the very place that they live to have that come through as what needs to, what must I do here, you know, for earth. So you brought up the question of ritual. Mm -hmm. And in all the great ancient religions, um, religious traditions, let's put it this way, ritual is really important because those rituals are the way in which you um, re-enchant places that have been damaged. And by the way, it's not just, you know, I got a lot of scoldings from Hawaiians who said, I, you're, you're too, you know, you disqualify yourself because you're not Hawaiian. You come from a different ethnicity. They would, they, they have a very, they're one of the least ethnocentric people I have ever met in my life because that's not in their philosophy. Their philosophy has to do about aloha. But they would say, you know, anybody can understand what we understand because the mana of the earth will come through your feet if you're paying right. attention. In other words, they don't disqualify you because you're not a native person. Now, right. there are some activists who might have that perspective, but the, but the cultural practitioners that I have known and the people I worked with at the park and and uh, you know stood on the police line with, you know, there was a full acceptance of the potential. And the, the worst they could say to you is, ah, poor thing, can't, he doesn't get it. But they wouldn't say, you don't, he, he can't get it. Because he's not yeah. one of you know the, the, well, that's and also the I mean, boy, right? As white guys, uh, I'm sure we've both had our experiences. So it's not as though it's cut off from us because we're white guys. It's only cut off from you if you, as you say, are cut off from it. You know, if you live a separated, sort of divorced life in that way. Um, but and that gets me to something else, which I find interesting, especially given. Oh, go ahead. It's not about color. The other thing is, it's not about skin color. Yeah. I got scoldings about this. And by the way, there are different, there are a lot of different white people. Like, I come from the Danish Scandinavian side. If you go back two or 300 years, that they're filled with all kinds of pagan stuff, so-called pagan stuff. Right? Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, so like a Scandinavian comes at this stuff, especially one who grows up in a rural area on the mighty Mississippi. He grows up with a different set of values than a guy who grows up in New York City who's an Anglo-Saxon, right? A, or, you know, someone who's from, 
you know, there are significant differences in the traditions of every single ethnic group within what you call the white group. What's what I love in in, in Hawaii is I have not felt like I would, you know, I had to learn to navigate a lot of different cultures. You know, Minnesota, when I left, was a really homogeneous place. And so when I got here, it was like suddenly I get to see the world. I'm on one little island. It's, I'm not even on Oahu where Honolulu is. I'm, I'm on one island and I've met people of all these different ethnicities. And every single one comes from a, every single one of those people come from a different tradition in their family and in their ethnicity. And I've never felt judged. I mean, in other words, you use that term white, but you've been on the island long enough to, you know, think that through. I would say, you know, what's your ethnicity? Where did you come from? What were your family traditions? What were your spiritual traditions? And, um, you should ask Native Hawaiians about that. You know, ask Lehulua Lopez, for example, um, who you interviewed um, not too long ago. I mean, how does she kind of frame that? Um, so, but the, but the main point you were making, I agree with. In other words, you've had access to some of these experiences, and so have I. But well, But let me ask you. Why did you have access? Why do you think you had access? Why do you think you had those experiences? I mean, you came from Newark. Mm, <laughs> Newark, New York. Oh, New no, York. No. Yeah. Oh, Newark, New York. No, New York, Manhattan. And oh, Manhattan. Queens. Okay, well, yeah. that's not interesting. That's an island, you know. Mm -hmm. How many people there think of that as actually an island, do you think? <laughs> yeah. For example, know. right? I had a I had an agent once who was lived in Manhattan, and I always call it, you know, I would say, you know, how things on your island, you know, and he'd like on island, you know, say, well, you're on Manhattan Island, right? But anyway, asking you how how do you process that? How do you how do you feel that that's happened? Why uh, why are you sensitive to it and have not dismissed it, but rather are trying to understand it and integrate it? Well, um, I have a, a couple of odd, I don't know what you would call them, recurring life experiences. Um, one would be, you know, I, I don't believe that they are alien and I don't believe they're abduction, but fairly early on I had what you would consider to be alien abduction type experiences. And somewhere along the way, that was in, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and then my adult life, New York, and further adult life here. Uh, in New York, um, I ended up having, I guess, what you would call big spiritual experiences that seem to be not related to that, but certainly they're in the same, they know about each other. <laughs> uh, so I think I've, I've, I guess I've always put it this way. If I didn't have these experiences, I would probably be not even skeptical. I'd be somebody who ignores all this stuff because who cares? It's all garbage. I would be that guy, but I've had them, so I can't do that. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I've been pried open uh, until, until I didn't need prying no more. Um, so let me so ask you. I, I what has been... Somewhere in there it makes me open, I guess. Let me ask you, what, what has been the impact? You've lived uh, here for over a decade now on the Big Island. 
okay, which is the, uh, the, the land of the active volcanoes, the snow-capped mountains in the winter. I mean, that's why it's so cold up here at the top of the volcano. I'm wearing a sweater. I mean, we have more, I mean, it's a magical place. And it's not highly urbanized, you know, um, there's a lot of open space. And also, I think it's one of the more traditionally, there are more cultural practitioners here, where there's certainly, that's the Hawaiian presence, the native Hawaiian presence is very clear here. And a lot of the leadership of the political movement is here. So what's been the impact for you specifically? And then, for most of that decade and a half or whatever it is, you've lived on South Point, which is a is a pretty significant place archaeologically, spiritually, um, physically, with those incredible waves and the incredible winds that come. This is the, you know, that and then. So what's been what's been the specific impact of that on you? And I would say in two ways, there's two parts to it. In your worldview, Jeremy, but also in your way of being hmm. as a person. What's the impact of Hawaii on those two things for for Jeremy? Um, I'm trying to think if my worldview has been changed. Um, I mean, they're kind. Of, there's kind of similar, similar things. I, I would say that, um, well, uh, the thing that I certainly did here that I didn't do anywhere else was learn from nature. I mean, that's one thing. Um, and uh, and I still, of course, still learn from nature and see the aliveness of of everything. I guess it's different understanding the aliveness of everything, you know, in an abstract way and then living in it um, and all of that, that How entails. That How is that different? That's really good. You're on to something there. Well, I mean, in one way, it, you know, you, well, it's sort of the difference between being and thinking. <laughs> one way you're thinking about things, you're, you're, it makes sense it's sort of intellectually there and you can kind of feel it. But the other way, you know, you're immersed in it and it's not just, it's not that carbon copy and there's more to it than just, you know, it's full immersion. So there's, there's more, you understand it from the inside out, not the outside in, which in the outside in, you can't know, <laughs> you can't know all of what it entails, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's really thinking about that. I really want to put an asterisk for your audience in that on that understanding it from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And one of the values of Hawaii, and I've seen visitors, it happens to visitors. You know, Hawaii's beauty and power, primal nature, is so big here that it's like uh, to use a mainland kind of term it's like in your face i mean it's pretty hard to keep it it's pretty hard not to feel the islands when you come in i mean people don't i can't tell you how many people couldn't articulate it but they said yeah i really feel different i feel like i've entered a different world and, and, and there are different ways even 
that that happens here. I mean, there's that normal, quote unquote, normal way of like just the awe of, but like living here on Mauna Loa as Mauna Loa was erupting. <laughs> that's a whole other ball game, you know, and like just sitting out in the dark, watching the glow and contemplating you know, the power and the immensity and how, you know, small but not insignificant we are in comparison. You know what I mean? Like, you don't feel small and, and like, oh, I'm useless. You feel like you're a part of it, you know? But but also, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you even put it yeah. into words? I guess that's what it is. You're confronted with wordless situations all the time. <laughs> and they're brilliant, you know? They're just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know, sure. you know, how to put the wordless into words that way. So hold your left brain harmless. Yeah. Hold your left brain harmless. You know, that's the analytical side of our brain. And if you can experience things with the right brain, you know, one of the wonderful things about indigenous cultures generally, and certainly in my, from what I've read, but it's certainly in my experience with my native Hawaiian friends, is that they have whole brain thinking. They don't have a war between the left side of their brain, which says, uh, which is where the analytical stuff is. It's also, by the way, where judgmentalism lives and the sense of separation. These are all important things that humans need to survive. But we have this right brain where intuition, sensitivities, the sense that we're part of everything, other people, other objects, of nature. You know, I, I'm oversimplifying this. But we've got two sets of circuitry so that we've got really extraordinary potential perception and learning ability. And in Hawaii, uh, the, 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 Hawaii, the Hawaiian people use both sides. They're not at war. This really confused the astronomers when, when we'd be at a hearings because they, they'd say, well, this is science versus culture. This is, this is the, the Catholic Church against uh, Galileo again, you know. Which right. just relates to their own um, professional wound from way back in the day, you know. But it had no application here because the Hawaiians, I mean, some of the leaders, Kiloa Pashoda was a telescope operator. Nelson Ho was an amateur astronomer. When I started testifying at the hearings and whatnot, and also when I would talk behind the scenes to try to help astronomers understand why there was so much anxiety and worry and fear and anger ultimately about their telescope you know they 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 didn't um they were dealing with their former tour guide who loves astronomy i mean some of the leaders in the whole protect the mountain we we loved astronomy and there and another one of the litigants was her father was an astronomer debbie ward i mean you know it's like he, it was never about that. It was a land use conflict. And the people who had a rigid view, almost an orthodox, almost a religious view, were the scientists, <laughs> not the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians had this sort of openness, right? You know, hey, we got no problem with science. They kept telling him, they kept telling him, this isn't about science. We're not, we, 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 we love science, you know? Uh, but the astronomers couldn't, Again, it come back to the myopic thing. But we each have that, and she said, at some point, something, how did you say you've got pride open? At some point, you broaden your perspective, but coming from our Western traditions, we have a liability, Jeremy. 
right. has nothing to do with skin color. It has to do with the the the. Uh, we come from a technocratic society that, to this day, emphasizes STEM, not the humanities, not well, art, okay. not storytelling. I mean, it's like you, you know. So that's like no, we want to be narrower and narrower. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. When I say white guy, when I because apparently that's triggered something, but when I say we're too white guys. I mean, we're still a culture of patriarchal white, uh, well, white patriarchy. So let's not pretend like there isn't this overarching umbrella called white guys. <laughs> there still well, is. It's different cultures and backgrounds and things like that. But when it comes well, to America, yeah. I mean, we, we know what this mentality is, right? Like, you know. Right. Well, what I'm saying is that is part. You know, most of the, much of the, and a lot of the scholarship, you know, if you talk about, like, if you read caste, I mean, a lot of what's happened is race is used in order to justify economic and military exploitation and colonization. And so, and then, of course, I grew up in Minnesota at a time when racism was quite widespread, even though it was a, it was a strong civil rights state and had leaders in the civil rights movement. but. What I'm saying is there's a deeper problem, even even in the racial problem, there's yeah. a deeper problem, you know, so and it's it's this ethnocentric perspective that our worldview, what we think the future looks like is superior to uh, indigenous people, say. Right. And um, and so I'm I'm not saying I mean. When I was a kid, Martin Luther King was a hero in my my household. I mean, we, you know, Hubert Humphrey was a great civil rights poet. You know, he built a lot of his his career on on his advocacy of civil rights, and he had to convince, try to convince others. Um, so there's no question. You know, race is a big problem in the states, and it's getting worse because it's used as scapegoating. But the big, but there's a bigger underlying problem too which is it's used to justify other things that have been really damaging to uh all kinds of communities including native hawaiians you know because the the, the racial attitudes of the missionaries the racial attitudes of the business sugar planters that came from those cultures was gate they used it to justify inhumane things that they did to the indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. And so, but it was only part of the problem, you know, and, and it was, it led them to, you know, the complete takeover of their society and, you know, all the rest of it. And we know all that history and the United States fully participated in that um, because Theodore Roosevelt wanted um pearl harbor so as a coaling station for ships that were going to go out and 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 uh expand the empire to the philippines i mean hawaii is part of that whole story so but when you're talking about whether this goes back to my only quest statement was you know Let's make this a bit. Let's go deeper than just the question of what skin color is it. Is. And don't it's not even about that. skin color. I mean, the skin color is the circumstance. 
it's um, I, I get what you're saying. The techno and the future forward is all part of it. Um, you know, maybe I'm just stealing here from my Lakota friend Tiokasen, who talks about westernized mind. Exactly. Or brain thinking, smart thinking. But that's what it is. It's westernized mind. I mean, that's you know kind of what I'm talking about. I just use the code word white people. <laughs> But obviously, I don't mean all white people because here I am being a white person. So, you know, what are you going to do? Well, and one of the wonderful things, just to mention, one of the wonderful things about Hawaii is that while people make clear racial distinctions is sort of affectionately, you know, like the Portuguese are this way, the the Japanese are this way, the Chinese bring this. But it isn't like um, there's there's so much intermarriage here. And I think that the Big Island is is one of the most ethnically diverse counties in the entire United States. Now that that says something when you think about New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, this this is so this is part of the great thing is to really instead of seeing the there's a sense of seeing the richness of the other rather than discounting them because they're the other. But yeah, but uh, my wife is uh, Chinese American, and she said this is the only other place other than New York City where she's felt completely comfortable. You know, so and and my main point here is was try to get you uh, on the question of of when you said you know white guys was to point out that these deeper problems that are part of that problem that, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that's not a problem. It's a problem. It's been a problem my whole life. And in fact, it's deteriorated on the main, on, on the continent in all the years I've lived in Hawaii. Every time I got back to the continent, I would say to my family, you know, things are getting more racist over here every year that went by. But the, but the other thing that was happening is that is used to justify other things, which are, Colonialization, development of na- you know paving over nature, um, globalization of you know support of Wall Street. I mean all of that stuff, right? I mean it's in some ways it's just the t- tip of the iceberg, and 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 if you read history, you'll see that race has been used to justify all kinds of stuff. But it isn't. If you just solve the race problem, you wouldn't you wouldn't solve the problems. There's all the other intention, which has to do with the worldview and what you call in this case. So I think it's like um, and then there are some people, depending on their family traditions, you know, even within the Judeo uh, even within the Judeo Christian thing, there are different levels of. I mean, I remember growing up in a mostly Protestant state where the Catholics were looked down on because they had all this pagan stuff. You know, they're doing incense and this. And I mean, it just goes on and on. That's it, that all that nuttiness, you know, all that effort to separate, which gets back to one of the key things in both books, but especially Monarchia. This one of both books show the deeper beauty and hidden tensions of America's 50th state. But one of the deeper beauties is the pervasive foundational belief in aloha, which is an inclusive concept. It also, if you really, um, it's not, it varies, there's different historical periods, but for the most part, most cultures 
have the tradition that if somebody um, arrives on shore, you know, you beat their head in, right? But the Hawaiians are like, well, why are they here? Why is it that they've come? I mean, with an openness, like, what's the reason? Now, this got them into trouble. This Allah concept made it because there wasn't a reciprocation by the Westerners who see things in more of a transactional rather than a reciprocal notion, which is another important thing we could discuss. But that's one of the things I loved about getting here is that um, there, you, if if you if you don't have if you if you don't have a racial bias, if your notion is that we're all humans, and I've experienced that notion more in real life in Hawaii from Hawaiians, and also a lot of the Asian Americans too, by the way, who have that Buddhist tradition or the Taoist tradition. You know, these are ancient, rich traditions that are layers here. And so it's real different than the more judgmental, fearful culture that I experienced and grew up with, you know, back in on the continent. And, well, I wanted uh, to, um, this is something I wanted to bring up before, and also it ties in with like, mm, gee, Jer, how, how have you been changed or what have you learned? Which is, the inclusiveness and the sense of family and the sense of community, um, even in terms of the so-called magic or the metaphysical, uh, where like, you know, I'm sure most people watching this show think that to, uh, you know, are into sort of, they, they know about at least occult stuff or meditation, these sort of solitary things. You do it on your own. You act alone. You go into the cave alone, and you have the hero's journey. And all, it's all of this alone, me, me, me. How can I add power to me? How can I gather for myself and then you know, go out into the world? And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that here. It seems to be listening to nature, nature listening back, this call and response. And family and like sacred places uh can be places where you know people meet up and have big gatherings <laughs> have lunch you know um i remember um my friend uh i was telling you about i i interviewed him i think for the experience which was a sideshow on uh unknowncountry.com where dreamland comes from his name is willie iokea and uh he is 100% hawaiian of the pre-Tahitian Hawaiian, you know, lineage. And he brought uh, a group of us to um, the Star Stones, which you're probably familiar with, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, being there is amazing. And looking at these stone structures, you know, where and listening to how they would guide you, uh, all, you know, all of that is amazing. But then there's this element to it where really says, you know, but it's also a place where people just, you know, you came and you um, talked about specific things, <laughs> you know, but it's like a gathering place. Like all of these sort of places that he brought us to had the real magic in them or sacredness to them, I should say. I shouldn't say magic, but the sacredness to them was that people gathered there to to commune with each other and to talk about certain issues that they had or whatever it was back in the day. And I just think like that is missing 
from anywhere else that I've ever been. That sense of um, community, family, naturalness. It's always this self-centered sort of accumulation of magic or, or accumulation of knowing yourself, not giving yourself up, but adding to yourself, self-knowing, blah. You know, in in isolation of everyone else to gain some sort of power. Have you thought about that? That that difference and how that that plays here, or you know, that might not even be on your radar. I don't know. But have you thought about that? Well, you know, we come from a very egocentric culture. It's a foundational um, part of the the lore of American success is the individual um, and it's a competitive society. So, you know, there's all kinds of people doing all kinds of things to get over their basic um, West uh, American. Now we're talking about this is a specific American thing, right? I mean, it's, if you travel much, you'll find out, I mean, people, People around the world recognize this in a way that Americans don't. But, but the, the manifestation of that, as it relates to having, like, uh, having your uh, uh, a spiritual experience, say in Hawaii, is that people will often say, "Oh, I felt blessed. You know, I was out swimming and a dolphin came, and and you know, I saw the hawk." And but then, you know, what I learned with Hawaiians when things happen like that. They immediately say, well, what, what is the message about Kuleana? Kuleana is about the, the um, you, you know, the shorthand kind of is what's your responsibility or your duty, but it's also kind of what's the, what's the path you're following? What, what, and, and there's a very elaborate philosophy about if everyone follows the path they're meant to follow and uses their intuition, their na'au, and in recognizing what is it that they're responsible for, what part of this big thing do they have a piece of, and if and 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 if they stay on their course, and not walk on someone else's like the missionaries did, right? <laughs> and stepping all over the Hawaiian schooliana, right, with their own. If if you if you stay on yours, and don't walk on others, there would be kind of a, a unity. That the world would there would be kind of an or, some order to it that would work out. Well, we come from a very in, in, intrusive culture. I mean, it's an imperial it's an imperial capitalistic society that's into expanding its own thing. It's an extension of the egocentric training we all get. You know, you're the one that's most important in all that. So, the fact that you observe that when people are at a sacred place, they immediately are operating as an organism. And when I was teaching English to Japanese students, too, um, who are from Japan, the, that tradition is in there, too. The, the individual never sees themselves as separate from the community. And, of course, in the case of indigenous cultures, they don't see themselves as separate from nature either. So whereas we see ourselves, you know, our creation myth, if you're from the Christian tradition, is first off, God creates you in his image, you know, talk about building a little ego. And then secondly, all of nature is for, and women too, by the way, but all of that is for your exploitation, right? 
So that isn't the way most cultures look at their relationship to nature or to each other. So we have that liability. So bringing it back to this metaphysical thing, people would say to me, oh, I had this blessing. And I would always ask what the Hawaiians would say to me, which is, so what's your kuleana? Now that you this connection has been made to you, what is your responsibility? And, and you know, there's a lot of tension between Native cultures and the New Age people, in quotes, because New Age people are focused on that, but they're not coming to stand in front of the police line. They're not testifying at the hearings. They went on Mauna Kea and had a magical, had access to spiritual experience, but then they, they're not helping to preserve the mountain. I mean, there are many people who do, but 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 where the where the what I have heard it enunciated a number of times, and there are other and I've read about other native cultures on, on the continent who have also had this friction with the New Age people. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to do the sweat lodge, but where are they when they're trying to build a pipeline? Those guys aren't here, and so there's this thing about what is your kuleana, and both books. Both novels introduce non-native people, you know, the Western audience, to that powerful concept of kuleana. And you see it played out in a story. It's not a lecture. You know, it's more integrated into the story in the way that I've seen it integrated into life. So that's how I would answer that, you know, that if you feel like Hawaii has blessed you, then you want to think about what your responsibility back to the island is or to the island people. And if you separate that, you know, or think that somehow being involved is profanes the sacred experience, you got it all wrong. And you also you also have the um, the people, the islanders will respect you more if you actually um, act upon the experiences that you have been offered that have given you insight, that have made your way of being different. That's why I asked you the question about way of being, or one of the reasons. If your way of being is different for having been exposed to these extraordinarily beautiful things that can happen here in the islands, um, then you want to act on it. You know, why aren't you one of the defenders then? This place is under enormous pressure probably more pressure now than ever, or certainly something equivalent to when the overthrow occurred. I mean, the military expansion on Pohakaloa, which the novel uh, introduces all of that because that's in the high country between the two tall mountains, um, the extraordinary wave of new settlers who are mostly boomers with their own little pile of cash they don't have to come here looking for work they're just using their retirement money and buying houses and so we have homeless people because those people are coming in and the price of and with the help of realtors the price of all the housing has gone up so there's a, a huge housing crisis here for affordable housing um that so you got the military, you got the settler colonialism of the current time, which is 
which is more problematic because those people don't actually have to learn to navigate the culture. They can live in a gated community and they can go to the golf club. They don't have to actually work in the community because they've already coming here with their cash and they're not and they're not going to school here, for example, which is was also a great um, educator of people coming in from before. So those two things are happening. Now, on top of that, you've got the scientists, including the National Academy of Science, which has now decided to begin giving money to the TMT to salvage their spot on Mount Ikea. Now, that isn't just the University of California and Caltech. Now we have the entire American establishment saying, no, we're going to fight the Hawaiians. But the way they say it is with all kinds of political politically correct. They have all the politically correct language. Yeah, we're going to give them some scholarships. We're going to do this and that, you know, see if we can buy out some of the opposition, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the National Academy of Science and the National Science Foundation, the U.S. government is now. So so David is now fighting an even bigger Goliath, not just the University of California and Caltech and their partners and the University of Hawaii. Now, now it's the entire American scientific establishment. Yeah. Um, so you know, then, that's why there's a lot of pressure. And if you have magical experiences, and I certainly responded the same way. I mean, I, I wanted to be part. When people asked me to help, I didn't say, oh, no, I'm too busy. The islands, you didn't ask me this question, but the islands actually were fundamentally, it was an incredible gift to me. I came here sort of jaded from too many years in politics and looking at public policy. And I came here and I discovered a place where the land, it was the land of love instead of the land of fear, where people respected nature instead of exploited nature, um, where it actually changed. I had a shake, I had shaken faith in human nature. And it, it, and that's the dedication of my first novel to the Polynesians of uh, the South Pacific and uh, Native Hawaiians who restored my shaken faith in human nature. I mean, and if that happens to you, the first question you would ask, and this isn't just a an old Minnesota thing, although it was prominent when I grew up, is okay. You got the gift. What's your responsibility? And I think that's really important, and and especially now the pressure is on this beautiful place, and if all and and now people are having to leave because it's not affordable, and so you're watching what my 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 auntie was worried about. There is no place without its people. Mm -hmm. So, does that make sense to you? Yeah, and this is. Um you know, something that I hear, you know, in other ways doing this show is, um, you know, politics. I don't want to hear about politics. It doesn't have anything to do with this stuff. And it's like, no, and if not only does it, I mean, in fact, in your book, um, you're actually showing, you know, nature or metaphysics, however that works out, whatever words you want to use. And I want to get into some other words in a second. I know we're running out of time, but, um, just quickly on this, it, the, 
all in the book, you know, which is based on reality, you know, all of the so-called magical aspects are working um, on the politics of the mountain, on the politics of Hawaii. I mean, it's all about that. So there is no, it, there is no politics. You mean the hurricane that shows up? What's that? You mean the hurricane that shows up? I mean, all of it, the hurricane that shows up, I, the, the fact that anything is happening, you know, uh, you know, lug nuts coming off the wheel, you know, whatever it is, all of that stuff is about the poli- the quote unquote politics of it's about what's happening. I mean, what are the what are politics that we want to divorce and treat as this sep- separate thing that, you know, we only talk about in certain contexts? It's our lives, right? Like, that's what that is. So. Yeah, they are interlinked. And um I wanted to ask you um the the one sort of word that we haven't talked about gods. Uh we've talked about nature and we've talked about metaphysics and you know, you didn't like paranormal, <laughs> but there is an aspect of gods. And in the book and and I would love to know if this reflects reality and how you talk about um Hawaiians being cut off from the gods in such a way that it that that's why they're confused. They walk around confused. So you, in a sense, you can be called to the mountain. You can have these sorts of spiritual experiences, but there's a direct connection, if I'm understanding correctly, that has been severed. Where did you come up with that? And and uh, what are we? What am I babbling about? So that's that's um, the way that Hawaiians connected to the mountain talk about. You know, this is Mauna Kea is probably considered the most sacred place in the entire archipelago. And so you, but even Hawaiians will say, you know, we only go if we're called. We don't go, uh, we don't go up there if just for the fun of it. You know, we don't go sightseeing. So same with Kilauea. You know, when I was writing exhibits for the, Kilauea Visitor Center, um, we were working, and I particularly was working closely with some of the most revered elders connected to that. And I learned a lot from them about, I mean, they they follow protocols when they go up there. This isn't like a sightseeing thing, you know, even when we would have meetings with them. You know, that, uh, so... Uh, If you and 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 another important thing that um, I hope that Westerners will think about <coughs> in the book when they read the books, the 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 novels, the the gods are are viewed as real in uh, Native Hawaiian culture. Not not all Native Hawaiians, by the way. It depends on their particular amalgamation of uh, Christianity and um, and Hawaiian uh, religious thoughts. But um, and it varies. I mean, it's it's a really interesting. I mean, people it's almost individualistic. Like, what's the mix there? But the idea is that. Um, you can access those or through through people who can access them or through places where the, the presence of the gods is ever present. 
like a wahikapu, a place that's sacred, a wahikapu, kilauea, maunakea, and there's a lot of other ones too, as opposed to a wahipana, a legendary place where there are a lot of stories, right? So with Kilauea, the elders clearly define Kilauea, the summit area, particularly as a wahikapu, a sacred place, in the same way with Mauna Kea. So, um, and it's not a light thing, you know, it's not, it's not like, a, it's not just a colorful new age concept, oh, I connected with Pele, or I connected with Poleahu, or with, with, with the goddess of snow or Lilinoi, the goddess of mists, or Wayao, you know, um, who, you know, who the, the sacred lake is named after. Um, so, and then the thing about it, what Westerners, this is something that the cultures that make up Western societies have, have their own traditions in which these things are not foreign concepts. Again, I emphasize, as we moved into industrialization, away from rural life, into industrialization, into it, and then ultimately into a technocracy, and where the focus is science, engineering, technology, and military development, um, traditions within all the various ethnicities that are in the Western um, background worse continue to be suppressed and then you know it ha it's just by quirk i mean it's not by quirk it was by colonial design hawaii is part of america so people are able to come here and then suddenly they reconnect with maybe some old ancestral memory from from years ago before they were so westernized that they i've seen people it's like they changed while they're watching the lava come out of the earth it's like they, they may be from New York City. I mean, I remember a guy from New York. In fact, he was crusty. What? This is it? I came all, I walked all the way out here just to see this lava. You know, the lava was coming out of the ground right in front of him, you know, 20 feet away. And he's like, and I said, listen, man, let me, and I put it into perspective with some compassion. And, you know, that guy ended up just sitting there for like an hour or two staring at it as if reconnecting with something he did know or his ancestors know and he his eyes were different his whole manner was different he was like you know he suddenly he put it into like perspective like what you were talking about when Mauna Loa erupts you live on the slopes of Mauna Loa you know so listening then if you during the Mauna Loa eruption then you'd hear somebody talk about the new world order and he's sort of like, well, yeah, you know, that, that puts that into perspective, right? This, when you see the, the, the world's largest active volcano erupting in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I hope I responded. I wanted to ask you a question, though. Who's your favorite character? And or, it's an optional, who's your favorite character? or what was your favorite scene in the book? I can't I can't keep myself from asking you that because you read the book, you know, and I, I'm dying to know. And it's different for everybody I ask the question. 
I don't know, you know, in a weird way, in a weird way, I guess I could kind of, uh, hoku. <laughs> I know that's like, uh, you know. Just for your audience, hoku is the young artist, cultural practitioner, whose paths keep getting crossed with Eric Peterson, who's the, the sort of angry, sorrowful vagabond at the beginning of the book. And their paths keep getting crossed. He gets hired to work in the kitchen up on Mauna Kea. And their paths keep getting crossed. And, and Hoku is very powerful with powerful, um, potent elder teachers. But she's a practitioner of Mauna Kea, but also an artist. Anyway, so, and what about the... So I, you why, know what it is? I, I think it's because I think it's because she was, you know, that Hawaiian, but st- you know, uh, getting involved in the the depths of that, coming out of being Westernized. Uh, there's just something about that that I found relatable, and um, and even though even though she felt her own feelings, obviously. Um, she was willing to sort of take her uh, her auntie's word, you know, or her, I guess she wouldn't have called her an auntie, but, well, I guess she would have. Um, yeah, that, Auntie uh, Moana, the elder. Yeah. The, yeah. That, that those feelings need to be recontextualized. That when she understands fully, she'll know what that anger is, you know. Right. Uh, there's just something about, and she was willing to trust that. Like, even though she's feeling her feelings, she's willing to trust um, the authority of of you know, her own elders. Uh, there's just something about that that I don't know uh, rang real to me. Um, and then scene. Well, I guess I liked it when uh, my favorite scene was when they, you know, Auntie couldn't make it all the way up the mountain. She, there was something that she had to do. She had to be at this lake. She had to, you know, be there specifically. And couldn't make it because she's too old and, you know, it's too far and it's the, the air is thinning out. And so, you know, Eric finds her a, a place on the cinder cone where she can oversee the lake and that's good enough. And, you know, I, something about that I really like. Um, I, I, I mean, like, of course, is a stupid word, I guess. But there's something about it that of, of like, you know, sort of having to make do. Like you can't even this powerful woman. Uh, who's got this, the kuleana and the, the sort of is fated to do something still has to make an adjustment. Even that person still has to make an adjustment and figure out um, how to work within her actual sort of physical means in her age and it makes it work. And then of course, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil what happens next, but she does her, her part. And um, yeah, I, that I, that resonated with me, I guess. What about you? <laughs> or is it like children? They're all your favorite. <laughs> too many, man. Too many. Too many scenes. Too many scenes. And I love that they that John Dawson agreed to illustrate some of them. Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you. I didn't know if we would have enough time. Um, but why did you decide, to, you know, there are illustrations throughout the book, which are great. And why did you decide to do that? Well, uh, with, when Daughters of Fire was published, you know, Ostensibly, these are adventure stories, right? Although they're obviously much more than that. And there's a great tradition in the 19th centuries of pen and ink drawings. You know, Moby Dick has them. 
Mark Twain, uh, uh, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, um, the Joseph Conrad stuff. So my brother said, you know, you really ought to have these, um, you have those those classic old um, pen and ink drawings. Well, I knew the guy had worked with him on the exhibit project. He he was painting for that project, but he he had done this. So I asked John Dawson to do it, and who is a really re renowned guy who now lives in Hawaii, has for quite a while, and he was excited about doing it. He did it for Daughters of Fire, and um, when uh, my agent negotiated the contract with the with the All Night Books for um, Mauna Kea, he said he part of the thing was he got the agreement that we could do. You know, the author wants to have the same kind of drawings and we heard so much positive from people people who were familiar said hey i haven't seen books like that for ages and the only reason is publishers don't want to pay for it right and the second reason um uh but then the young people who've been you know there's a lot of gen xers who are loving this book and they're they're on their instagram book reviewers and they're they're they're, they're enjoying the book and they they probably have never seen those drawings but they love them I mean, who doesn't love them? Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. anyway, um, and it adds, it also was, it helps because a lot of the readers are not from the islands. I mean, one of the main target audiences is not, I mean, everything in both my novels, the locals all know. The people who don't know it are the people who are not from the islands, you know, who are having an impact on the islands, right? So that's kind of like a tar big target audience. But it helps to be able to show them, like, what does a silver sword plant, this exotic plant up on the mountain, look like? Um, even what do native Hawaiians look like? You know, um, to try to get a, a, a better sense of the spirit of the place. And and some of the, these young book reviewers who love the book are they're commenting on that. You know, it helps. It helps them being not from the islands to understand, get a better idea. But we don't illustrate the whole thing, just enough, right? So you yeah. can get yourself oriented. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Um, and I liked the cover. And I liked it. This is, this is how sort of minutia and stupid I get. So I've got it right here, folks. Uh, Mauna Kea, a novel of Hawaii. And I kept thinking to myself, why did he... Was it just for brevity? Like, why did he say of and not about? Like, those are different words. And not, did did Tom actually do the subtitle, or did someone in the publishing? And I thought, like, no, he did it. Novel of Hawaii. Did he even put any thought into the word of, or am I putting too much thought into the word of? Because okay, it really uh, is actually, like it's not just about Hawaii. It is of Hawaii, as you are of Hawaii. You know. Okay. Well, my publisher is third generation writer. And um, and actually, that came from the publisher, from him. Hmm. Uh, but I immediately evaluated that question because I have, you know, 40 years of writing. You're going to say, what am I going to do? Is that an of or is that about? But the publisher was correct. You know, if you read the book, it is a book of Hawaii. It is a tale of Hawaii. It is not really a tale about Hawaii. That's too big a promise. Hawaii is a big, complex place with a lot of different um, storylines. 
So this is a this is a this is a Manukeh, a novel of Hawaii. It's it it it's a novel that is of Hawaii. It grows from that place, the, as opposed to about. It's it makes no pretense that this is the comprehensive view of of Hawaii. You're gonna you know you're gonna right. So actually, it's it it, uh, it was. It was the publisher's idea, and it was affirmed by both me and my agent, who is also a former publisher, an editor, um, who, uh, you know, uh, old hands, old seasoned hands, knew the difference. And if you you think about it a little bit, you'll you'll see of Hawaii. That's the best way. I agree. Well, folks, a lot of care obviously went into the crafting of this book, and it is, yes, a work of fiction, but it is also at heart not. So get it, <laughs> read it, and pass it on. Um, Tom, people can find you online at tompeak.com, right? Um, we'll yeah, also have links to what people want to pick up the book. Right, and peak is P-E-E-K. Mm-hmm. Um, like peeking through a telescope, um, ah, well, <laughs> but it's it's uh, tompeak.com, and there's a lot of uh, information, um, not only about the author, but particularly about both novels. And also, we're getting increasing praise for the book. It's still early; the book came out in October, but um, uh, I just had to post a couple more beautiful praise quotes uh, on the website. So when you get to the Mauna Kea page, you can you can hit the extended document. There's a big red button. You can look at some of the feedback we we were getting. We're very gratified for that, and I really appreciate your inviting me, Jeremy. Uh, I, I it's an interesting you know our paths crossed in a rather um, fortuitous way, I guess. Um, you happened to walk into that book signing. You weren't even there for the book signing. You were there for the art, I think. But anyway, yeah. I'm glad that we did, and I greatly appreciate it. And I appreciate the patience of your listeners for this uh, long uh, discussion. And uh, I would wish you and all your listeners much aloha. Much aloha to you. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, here endeth the program. Uh, my thanks to Tom Peak. Please do visit him at Tom Peak. Dot com that's t o m p e e k dot com all one word uh and check out his work of course we'll have an amazon link on the unknown country show page um but do check it out if if you've ever been interested in hawaii and sort of what it's like um to live here in terms of what's at stake uh this is definitely the book for you um and now I got to go read his first book, Daughters of Fire. I never read it, and now I want to read it. So it has that effect. Uh, go, go read his work. Um, but not before I say once again, thank you for listening to me for the last I don't know what year and a couple of months. And again, thanks to Whitley. He will be back, of course, next week. And um, yeah, come find me on the internets. Um, I will be seeing you around. Who knows? Maybe I'll pop in and do like a guest host again someday. It just won't be a permanent thing. That's all. 
we'll see what happens. All right. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.